All right, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 10. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's on page 451. To help us understand this psalm, I want to share a little vignette with you. A vignette that's very common in my house, and probably at one time or another was common in your house. I'll put my acting hat on for this one. Daddy, daddy. What is it? Theodore. Theodore, he... What did Theodore do? He said... He said... He said, he is the boss of me. <laughs> I want you to hear the frantic nature of that comment. I want you to feel the stress created by Theodore's claim that he is, in fact, the boss of Lucy. <laughs> now, there are days, I will admit, when I am tempted to feed the paranoia and simply say, you're right, he is the boss of you. <laughs> now, while that would be fun in the short term, I recognize it would not be good for me in the long term. So I just push that down. So normally I take Lucy aside Normally, and I say to her something along the lines of this, Lucy, is Theodore really the boss of you? And I get a sheepish no, usually. Is Theodore your parent? Another sheepish no. Grudging the truth that she knows is true. And most of the time, that can de-escalate the situation and bring peace and order at least for another five minutes. <laughs> I want to draw an analogy to that very common, especially among siblings, if you have any amount of kids, you've, you've seen that played out. If you've just even been around kids, you've seen it play out. This sibling rivalry, this false claim that creates stress and hardship. Today in our psalm, it, it, it opens with this idea of God being far away. And this, this terrible darkness, this terrible time of adversity. And what makes it worse, and maybe what created it in the first place, and what's specific to Psalm 10, is that we're going to hear what the psalmist calls the wicked person, we're going to hear them speak and make claims. And these are claims that go against everything the Bible says and cause further hardship for the believer. And what we need to do, because these claims, you'll recognize these claims as just a part of your life here on earth. None of them will you. But just like on a smaller scale, Theodore making these false claims against Lucy caused hardship and stress. 
And the antidote to that was the truth. In the same way Psalm 10 both creates and shows us the statements of the person who has rejected God, here called the wicked person. But Psalm 10 also contains the truth to combat those lies. Because when God feels far away, we feel adrift. We feel disconnected out on the sea of life. And how do we how do we come back to solid ground? And again, to draw analogy with the story I told about Lucy and Theodore to us is we need to stand on the truth of God's word in those dark times. So there's the pattern. Here's the pattern. You can see it in your outline as you're following along. We're going to see what the wicked person says, the truth claim that they are making. That, spoiler alert, is a lie. It's okay. And then the next part, we're going to look at the truth that is the antidote to that lie. And again, the context of all of this is that this is a psalm and these are truths for time when God feels far away and distant. So if you're following along in your outline there, you're going to see our big idea is this. That when God feels far away and we see the wicked prosper, we stand on the truth of the promises of God's word. So let's hop into the psalm there, starting in verse 1. So Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This opening verse, again, sets the emotive stage for the state of mind and the state of their being for the psalmist. If you've lived for any amount of time on this earth, you know that there are these times when God feels far away. When we feel like God is hiding himself from us. These are the dark moments where we cry out to God, why? And I want you to recognize that the Bible has language for those times. The Bible does not pretend that these times do not exist. In fact, some people would categorize Psalm 10 as a lament psalm. Meaning that it is a psalm meant to instruct us and demonstrate for us crying out to God from our pain. It's not an easy mindset or emotion to deal with as a believer, but it's here. And Psalm 10 is one of these psalms. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble. This is a psalm for those times. Not if they happen, but when they happen. Now let's look now at what the wicked person says. Let's look at verses 2 to 4. 
Psalmist writes, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Verses 2 to 4 begin a section of the psalm that describes this wicked person. It describes their actions and their mindset and their intentions. The wicked person pursues the poor. The assumption is not for good things. (laughs) They're pursuing the poor to take advantage of them, to oppress them, to steal from them. And the second part of two, there's a call that they would be caught in the schemes that they have devised. The prayer of justice is they are scheming against people beneath them. They're scheming against the poor and the oppressed. They're greedy. And they boast of the desires of their soul. There is an arrogance to the wicked And it is this pride, this arrogance that prevents him from seeking after God. And in his pride and his arrogance, he says, end of verse 4, there is no God. One thing we need to understand here is that when someone claims there is no God, in one sense they're claiming that they are. Because if there is no God, they can be the top thing or person in their world and in their view of things. And this is a claim that a lot of people in our culture and in our world make. It's foundational to the other claims made later, but it begins here. The wicked person says there is no God. The wicked person will tell you, you believe in nothing. That when you pray, you just are speaking to the ceiling. As one atheist who mocked Christianity once said, to believe in God is like believing in a spaghetti monster in the sky. <laughs> and is just as ridiculous. This is the claim that is made. This is the claim that is to attack our trust in God. But the truth is, the Lord, our God, is king, is God forever. Look at verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. When the claim is made that there is no God, the Bible says no. And God is not just the God of a particular country, particular geographic location. And he's not just in charge for a little bit. He is the king forever and ever. What I appreciate about this truth is that it is the antidote 
to the claim that there is no God because it is a humbling claim? If God truly is the king forever and ever, that means no one else is. And if you're not the king, you're below the king. There is a humility that we need in approaching God, and then there is a humility that is created by the fact that he is God. The wicked person is arrogant against God. But God's people are humble towards God and stand on the fact that he is true and he is real and he is there. Let's look at the second claim that the wicked makes in verses 5 to 6. His ways, this is referring to the wicked person, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for his, all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. The psalmist looks out into his world, and as much as things change, they stay the same, that he looks out into his world, and he sees the wicked prosper. First of all, this is a good reminder that just because something is growing and is popular doesn't make it right. <laughs> but when the psalmist looks out, and he, he must ask God, why? Why are the wicked allowed to prosper? We think of a verse like Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Here we see that one of the reasons God feels so far away is that the psalmist looks out into his world and sees the wicked succeeding and thriving. How can God be near if the wicked are doing so well? It's an amazingly honest question. Out of this prosperity, in verse 6, the wicked person speaks. I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. This wicked person, the character of the wicked person, looks at his prosperity and first of all, believes that he himself has done it. <laughs> and if he is so great and has done so well, therefore no one else can be as great, and therefore no one else can take him down, therefore he shall not be moved. You also see a connection to the fact that he does not believe there is a God. If he's so prosperous and has so much, if there's no God, who is going to remove him? Because he is powerful. And has all that he wants. 
So what do we do in our day when we see the wicked prosper? I know that we have one of the greatest justice systems in the world. But I know we can all think of multiple occasions when it felt like the person with the most expensive lawyer won the case. We have a great judicial system, but even then it is not without flaws. From the football player who hits his wife or girlfriend and still ends up playing and making millions, to the Hollywood star who gets a DUI and gets community service and still makes millions through their movies. We still see this today. We still see the wicked prospering. And we cry out to God, why? But what do we do? They're prospering. They have power. They have wealth. What do we do? Look at verses 16 to 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear, your ear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Verses 16 to 18, as, they, as we saw just a bit ago, that they do represent God's kingliness and his authority and his godliness. They also represent his justice. They represent that no one can escape the justice of God. Verse 16, the second part, the nations perish from his land. He will punish. The nations there is in reference to, to the people who have rejected God across the earth. They will perish. They will be judged. Verse 18, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. God does justice for those who can't do justice for themselves. Okay, the fatherless the orphans. If we were ranking society in terms of having power and authority, orphans would be at the very bottom. But even the orphans are protected. And if the orphans are protected, everyone's protected. If God will protect the least, he will protect everybody else. So God will do justice for you. And look at the description. I think this is it's very humbling. The description of justice in verse 18. So that the man who is of the earth, this is another way to talk about the wicked person in the rest of the psalm. So that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is a picture of complete justice and so while the wicked person says i will not meet adversity i will be here forever god says no 
you will face my justice. And when we look out into our world and we see people getting away with it, when we see them paying off the court system, when we see their fame leading to court decisions in their favor, we know that that will not work with God and God will bring about justice. What gives us hope when we see the wicked prosper is that one day, one day all will stand before Jesus as judge and no one can escape that. Let's look at the next lie. Starting in verse 7. So here's the lie. God does not see what I do. His mouth, again referring to the wicked person, is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed sink down, and fall by his might. Again, painting a picture of this person, of this wicked person who oppresses and abuses the poor, those who can't stand up to him. We have some wonderful metaphorical language in verse 9 where he lurks in ambush like a lion. You know that when the lions strike, they don't go for a fair fight. They go for the easy target, and they just destroy that animal. That is the wicked person. He sits in ambush for people, and the helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. And so he says in verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Now I want to connect what he says here to what we've seen previously. If God doesn't even exist, how's he going to see anything? And even if we grant that God exists, but he doesn't, He can't move the wicked person. He can't give any adversity or judgment to the wicked person. He must not be seeing what's going on. In one sense, it makes sense what he is saying. But we also need to recognize it for the lie that it is. His claim, God doesn't see what I do. And therefore, he's not going to do anything about it he's not really there anyway. So what do we say? What do we lean on when the culture around us says God's not watching? Look at verse 14. 
but this is this is calling out to God here but you do see for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands to you the helpless commits himself you have been the helper of the fatherless God can be the helper to the helpless and the helper to the fatherless because he does see what is done. He has seen and will see what is done to you and to those whom the wicked oppress. God sees it all. He sees and he takes notes. Probably a passage that's a little more familiar to some of you, and we'll, we'll look at it a little more later, is, is the end of the book of Revelation. And one of the pictures that the book of Revelation gives is that there's books. And one of the books has written what everyone has done. And so... The, The picture of the Bible is this, that God sees the wickedness. God sees the evil. God sees the oppression. Even when he doesn't feel close, we can know that he sees it. Even if you are too ashamed to tell anybody else, God knows. Even if you're forced into silence by those who would hurt you, God knows. No one can hide their wickedness from God. And that leads into what the wicked person says next. Let's look at verses 12 to 13. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account. Again, let's follow the, the train so far. If, if God doesn't exist, he's not going to hold anyone responsible for what they've done. If God doesn't execute judgment, he's not going to hold anyone responsible for what he does. If he doesn't see what's going on, how can he hold anyone responsible? And so again, the claims sort of build and relate to each other. But here, the specific claim is, you're not going to press charges, God. You're not going to hold me accountable for what I've done. You won't punish the guilty. So what do we say to a world that denies the execution of God's judgment. I mean, it might make us a whole lot popular if we gave this one up. That God's sort of like Santa Claus and it's easy to get on his nice list. Or even if we are on the naughty list, you know, he's still nice enough, he'll give us something. It'd be a lot more popular. But it's not the truth. 
And, and, and as we talk about judgment and justice, while I think at times it can be very, it can feel weird. But as I read God's word, I don't want to live in a world where God doesn't have justice. That is a world of wickedness and chaos. If you want to have hope, then you need to understand that God's justice is good. Because if God isn't just, evil does not get punished. Wickedness runs rampant. And while it might times feel uncomfortable, and we don't always think of it this way, but God's justice is good. Because it's God making everything right. So what do we say? What is the truth here? Let's look at verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. You see it used the same word there. The wicked person says, you're not going to call me to account. And the psalmist says, God, call him to account. (laughs) And the assumption from the psalm is that God will do that. God will hold person responsible for what they've done, whether they admit to it or not. It doesn't change the fact that it's true. And so the person who has crushed the poor, who sits in ambush like a lion, will be held to account for that wickedness. This is God's promise when he feels distant and we see the wicked prosper. That they will be held to account for what they've done. A couple points of application this morning. Number one, in the dark times, rehearse and stand on the truth. When we're in these hard moments, we, we, we mimic the activity of a child, like I said in the story at the beginning, of we just start flailing and spinning and losing control. And we need God's truth to be that stability in our life. That when everything around us is dark and chaotic, we know that this is true and it's sound and it will not move. So in the darkness, we need to be speaking truth to ourselves. We need to combat the lies, not just saying that's a lie, but then bringing in the truth. 
And again, Psalm 10 shows us both, that it, it shows the lie, and then it shows us the truth. So when we're tempted by the lie, when we're in the lie, when we're being told the lie, we come in with the truth. And we rehearse it to ourselves. Number two, prosperity is not always a sign of blessing. This is a common misnomer. Just because something is popular, just because something is growing, just because someone has lots of money does not mean they have God's blessing. Because here, we're very clearly told the wicked are the ones prospering. See, we have to have a different metric. The metric for good and evil is not whether it's popular or growing or prosperous. The metric is God's character and obedience to his word. Number four. In all this talk about justice and talking about the punishment and accountability of sin, I want to make very clear that God has made a way for that sin to be forgiven. See, in God's justice, I like to think of it this way, that God has made it possible that your, your sin either gets punished on you or on Jesus. In each sense, justice is completely and fully done. But we don't suffer the consequence of that justice when we place our trust in Jesus Christ. And our sins are forgiven and he bears the punishment we deserve. And so as we talk about how God will bring punishment, he will make things right through his justice. He has also made things right through his son for those who believe in him. So that we do not have to face condemnation. But we can have forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. I want to close this morning reading from Revelation 20. But as you're listening, and, and again, for some of you, this may be a more familiar passage than Psalm 10. But I want you to hear the similarities between Psalm 10 and Revelation 20. I'm just going to read an excerpt from Revelation 20. This is uh, verses 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. There is a God. <laughs> from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, all people, standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what, excuse me, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books. God sees what you've done. <laughs> according to what they have done. That we are accountable for what we've done. You see how Psalm 10, Revelation 20. In one sense, Revelation 20 is the fulfillment of Psalm 10. That God does see wickedness, that he is there and he will bring justice.
for those who reject him, but offers life and salvation and forgiveness to those who put their trust in him. And so as you find yourself in the dark parts of life, those times where you are saying, God, where are you? We stand not on our own ability or our own prosperity. We stand on the truth that extinguishes the lies. We stand on the truth of God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Psalm 10, that when we are told lies about who you are and your justice, that we would combat those lies with the truth, and that the truth would be a refuge and a stronghold for us. God, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, your mercy and your justice come together and that you make a way for us who deserve the punishment of the wicked, who deserve your judgment, but that you've made a way through Jesus Christ for us to be forgiven and for him to take the punishment that we deserve by your grace through faith in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.